You're listening to a Cripple and Co. production. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by Come As You Are. Come As You Are is Canada's only worker-owned co-op sex shop. Trans-owned and operated, Come As You Are carefully reviews and curates their selection of sex toys, books, and DVDs. Now you can get 15% off your next purchase at comeasyouare.com using coupon code AFTERDARK. We call it slicking the bean, choking the chicken, giving yourself a hand, auditioning finger puppets. There's a million and one names for the old five-finger shuffle, and yet hundreds of millions of people are unable to sauce the taco due to disability, aging, or illness. That's where we come in, if you'll pardon the phrase. At Bumpin', we've created the world's first accessible sex toy, so people with limited mobility, hand issues, and disabilities can celebrate Palm Sunday just like everyone else. If you agree that everyone deserves sexual pleasure, help us spread the self-love and fund an orgasm for those in need. Give the gift of the big O at GetBumpin.com. That's G-E-T-B-U-M-P-N dot com. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by Clonawilly.com. Clonawilly and Clonopussy are do-it-yourself molding kits that allow anyone to make an exact replica of any penis or vulva into a sex toy at home. All materials are ethically sourced and 100% body safe. If you shop at Clonawilly.com right now and use the promo code DARKPOD at checkout, you can get 20% off site-wide. Wow! That's a deal that cannot be cloned. I talked to one of the representatives the other day, and they are more than willing to answer any questions you have about how to make your own clone willy or clone pussy, how to use the kit. They're so, so willing to go on this journey of cloning a willy or cloning a pussy with you, and they're super nice and super responsive to any concerns. So if you want to pick up your own clone willy or clone a pussy kit right now, head over to clonawilly.com and use promo code DARKPOD, that's D-A-R-K-P-O-D at checkout right now. And remember, this is a deal that cannot be cloned. Hey there, Disability After Dark listeners, Andrew here. Well, it's summertime here in Canada where I'm recording, and you know, in summertime, we're always told to go outside and explore our national parks. But, you know, for all disabled people, exploring our national parks is just not accessible. Well, I want to tell you about a really cool event that's looking to change that. My friends at the Engineering Health Lab at the Kite Research Institute University Health Network are hosting a virtual conference on national park accessibility in Canada. This free event will take place from August 23rd through August 25th, 2022. The goals of this completely free event are What does national park accessibility look like to me and why is park accessibility important? What are the major barriers that impact national park accessibility for people with disabilities? 
and what are innovative solutions to improve park accessibility for people with disabilities. You know, I think this is such a great initiative and something you don't want to miss out on because we really need to be considering accessibility everywhere, even throughout our national parks in Canada. So to register for this free event, please head to www.parksaccessibilityconference.ca today. Content warning. The language, content, and discussion found within this episode of Disability After Dark will be explicit. Listener discretion advised. This is a podcast that looks at disability stories. It's like sitting down with a really close friend to have a real conversation about disability, sexuality, and everything else about the disability experience that we don't talk about. The things about being disabled, we keep in the dark. Here is your deliciously disabled host, disability awareness consultant, Andrew Gerza. Hello, hello, friends. Welcome to the show, friends. And thank you so much for clicking on episode 307 of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on disability stories. I'm, of course, your deliciously disabled, delectable daddy host, Andrew Gerza. Let us get comfy, cozy, and crippled and get today started, shall we? Today we're going to dive right in because I really want you to hear my guest today. They're really funny and we had a really great interview and I cannot wait for you to hear it. So we're going to we're going to just dive right in to our guest today cuz it's a really good one and I can't wait for you to hear it. So let's do that right now. On the show today, I shine a bright light on award-winning author of The Leather Couch: Clinical Practice with Kinky Clients and its advanced practice sequel kink-affirming practice, culturally competent therapy from the leather chair. Dr. Stephanie Gorlick, who describes herself as an expert on the edges and a bridge builder between the margins and the mainstream. We have a hilarious conversation about disability, perforated bowels, on a cruise ship, not feeling disabled enough, feeling in between, being constipated or almost dying, so many, so many things we talk about here. It was such a fun conversation to discuss body things and disability with Dr. Gorlick. It was so, so really cool to chat with her about kink and disability and her experience being disabled. Plus, who doesn't love talking about perforated bowels on a cruise ship? I mean, this conversation goes everywhere and it was amazing. So, I'm so excited for you to hear it. It's so funny and real and raw and good and all the things we like to do here on this show. So without further ado, please enjoy listening to my episode with Dr. Stephanie Gorlick right here on Disability After Dark. Dr. Stephanie Gorlick, hello. Hello, thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad to have you on Disability After Dark. You and I, as most of my guests, have been planning this for a while now, and I'm so glad it's finally happening. It's giving me something to look forward to, so I, I'm I'm okay with the reschedule. So the builds anticipation. I'm so excited, and you know, being disabled and rescheduling—that's our favorite game to play. Is like, when can I reschedule this for? Who knows? Yeah, calendar roulette, basically, right? Um, so hello, and thank you so much for being here today. And we're going to talk about so much stuff today. I'm excited, but for just for for a little bit for all of us. Can you introduce yourself to the audience? 
tell us a bit about who you are, what you do? Yeah, so I am um, a social worker by degree and a sort of a, I'm a sex therapist by profession. So I work, I have a private practice. I work exclusively with the BDSM, kink, and um, ethical non-monogamy communities. And then I also write and speak and teach and present about those communities as well. So I wrote The Leather Couch, Clinical Practice with Kinky Clients. The sequel to that is coming out. Um, I'm writing a book for couples right now that'll come out next year. It's just all about the world of explaining sexual minorities and marginalized populations to my fellow therapists and the world at large. I love that. And by the time people are listening to this, I think we just said that we're going to air this by the time your book, your, the sequel comes out. So by the time they listen to this, there will be, I'll have the links in the show notes to go purchase the sequel so you should everyone should get it because i think so many of us with disabilities intersect with bdsm and king communities and all that stuff and i have some questions about that that i want to get to later but first can you doctor do you want to call you dr gorlick you can call me stephanie it's fine okay good okay because i because i mean i could be i could do i could do dr gorlick it's fine uh but stephanie so one of the things that you one of the reasons why i was like immediately taken by your form and I was so excited to talk to you was because you you said oh there was some time where my bow was perforated and it involved it involved like sea rescues and helicopters and I was like oh that sounds really cool and like what that cool but like wow that sounds really hilarious and so immediately as somebody who's been sick in like emergent situations um I was like we have to talk about that so I want to hear that whole story from start to finish Okay, so it starts with wedding planning. Um, my my fiance and I were getting ready to get married at the time, and we both decided that we wanted to lose a little bit of wedding weight, as everybody does. And I had a weight loss procedure that I'm not going to name because it's a whole thing. But um, the doctor that actually did it for me was not great. At the time, he was the only person in our home state that was um, trained in doing this procedure. And unfortunately, the only person was also a very shady person, but we did not know that at the time. I had this procedure. We got married. We had our honeymoon. And then theoretically, the procedure was supposed to be reversed in like January, February. My birthday is in the middle of January. And my partner surprised me with um, a trip to Bermuda, a cruise, because we are like Adam's family diehards like Gomez and Morticia are life couple goals for us amazing he thought it was hilarious hilarious to take me to the Bermuda Triangle for my birthday of course which in hindsight might be foreshadowing (laughs) yeah I mean I mean I don't know about I don't know if I would want to go to the Bermuda Triangle with any partner that I ever had to be like that feels too ominous for me but okay and if you're going to go down, at least you go down together, right? That was kind of the thought. It seemed very Adam's family romantic. So That makes me think of like all the times my mom and I have been on a plane and they walk by you and they say like, you know, if there's an emergency, this will happen. My mom and I just love each other because I'm severely disabled. So if there's an emergency, I'm going down. And it was like, nice to meet you. And so we always say we're going down together. Like she's like, if you go down, I go down. We're going down together. So like. It's funny when you said that. That's what I first thought of. 
I love that. That's that speaks to the love that is embodied by the Bermuda Triangle in this case. <laughs> and so I, I got like what I thought was the stomach flu about a week before our trip. And we had been planning this trip for months and I was so excited. And I'm like, I'm gonna push through, it's gonna end soon. I swear I'm not gonna die, it'll be okay. And I was miserable. And we actually drove from the Midwest to the port. So we had about an eight, 10 hour drive. And I was just trying to stay in the car, stay upright. But I I was convinced it's got to pass soon because it's already been like three, four days. No stomach flu lasts as long. And I make the customs and I make it through the trip and we get on the, the cruise ship and we like take our stuff to the cabin and then we have to go to the safety briefing. Because you always... Bermuda Triangle or airplanes, you know, you have to do that safety check. This is where the lifeboats are. This is where the emergency exits are. And we got through that process. And I looked at my now husband and I'm like, I can't really move right now. Like, I I don't think I can walk. And he's like, okay, well, let's just sit here for a minute. And then we'll go back to the cabin and we'll take a nap. And when you wake up, everything will be fine. And instead I woke up screaming. Oh no. Screaming. (laughs) This is where I tell you that I'm like diagnosably needle phobic. Like I meet every criteria for a phobia. I am terrified of needles, which means I'm not a huge fan of doctors. It's a whole big thing. Which so is, he, was so fun for you being disabled. I'm sure like that. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. It became exposure therapy very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> but so when I started begging him for a doctor, he knew I was sick. Like that's like, there's something has gone wrong when I'm asking for needles. Yeah. So it, it immediately becomes like very kind of exciting because it's the middle of the night and the ship's like medical bay is closed and he's begging the cruise ship um, crew to open up the medical bay. And they're like, okay, fine. We can wake up the doctor, but it's, we're going to have to charge you $500 or you can wait until 9am. And I'm like, it's fine. I'll wait. It'll be okay. And my husband's like, no, I'm paying the money and get, get her the doctor. Open him up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So I'm on the cruise ship for about four or five hours. It's just like brutal pain, brutal pain. And they're trying to do x-rays and they're trying to figure out what's going on. But it's a cruise ship. So all of their equipment is like from the 70s. Like I'm pretty sure from the x-ray equipment. (laughs) And finally, and this is the best part of any disabled person's story, because it's just such a spectrum. The doctor goes to my husband and goes, well, she might be dying or she might be constipated. We can't really tell. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. I, ironically, I've been exactly where you are. I've had the same. The doctor they didn't say I was dying, but they said, you might have C. diff that could be fatal, mm-hmm. or it's just explosive diarrhea. We're not sure. Best of luck to you. And like, you're sitting there in that situation. You're being like, did you just, where's the laugh track? Did you say that with full seriousness? I'm not supposed to laugh at what you just said. You had the, you had the too much coming out. I had the not enough coming out, but we had the same conversation. Yeah. So they tell us that we're reaching a point where the cruise ship is going to be too far out from shore for them to get me off the boat. So they have to make a decision now or else I'm going to be stuck on the ship until we get to Bermuda, which would be, I think, a day and a half away. So we're up against the clock. I am, at this point, not functional. Like, there's not much happening. It's just it's just all pain and yeah. pain 
you would have been so proud of me. I took the IVs like a champ because they promised me that the pain medicine would be there. <laughs> and it didn't work. Friendship medicine. It was tolerable. It yeah. kept me coherent. So medicine that you're not sure if it's from the 70s or from now like you don't know exactly exactly so eventually they tell us that they've called the coast guard and they're gonna have me airlifted off the ship (laughs) now i'm picturing the love boat so i figure that there's like a helipad at the top of the ship and like the helicopter will land yeah that is not in fact what happens oh no what What happens is they take you up to the top deck of the ship and the helicopter is several hundred feet above that, still in the air. Okay. And they lower a little basket down. <laughs> oh, no. And they put you in the basket, and they haul you up to the to the helicopter that is hovering above the highest level of the cruise ship. Okay. As a disabled person that uses hoarder lifts every day, this is not, that would not, for me, that would not be an uncommon experience, but... I can see how terrifying it would be for you in that moment. And and just the degree of scale between a Hoyer lift and like helicopter above. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I was thinking of joke. It's in no way the same thing. Oh, I know. But, but I mean, the Hoyer lift can be kind of, anyway. So in the same way that I'm terrified of needles, my partner is no fan of heights, like at oh, all. Oh, no. But that's okay, because they first try to tell us that they won't let him go with me. That that he will have to k- stay on the ship and continue on, and then when no. he to, the, to Bermuda, they'll let him know where they ended up taking me, and he can figure out how to get there from there. <laughs> no, 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 that's horrible. I don't like that. So, luckily for us, and I have to say, like, really, as much as I'm like joking about sort of the archaic medical bay, the ship crew is actually phenomenal because they they put the nurse uh, from the medical team on the helicopter. They took her up in the little basket, and then they went to take me up in the little basket. And the ship's captain actually kind of like stepped in front of me with my husband, and they're like, "No, he's going next." And both of them together were intimidating enough that the, you know, the little coasty rescue diver was like, okay, I guess he's going. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> they took him out and they put him in the basket. And then my, my partner was given instructions on, okay, so if you fall, try to try to like position your body in such a way. And this is how you drop into the ocean from hundreds of feet above it. Oh my God. Got divers and we'll come and get you. <laughs> Don't worry. Don't worry. If you fall from 100 feet from a little dangly basket, I mean, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. And, and again, this is the person that is not a Heights fan at oh, all. Oh, yeah. Yeah. One part of the adventure for him. So they do it. They get him up in the basket and he gets in the helicopter and then they come and they get me. And they did not t- give me the same instructions they gave him. Because I'm pretty sure they knew that if I fall, I was I was dead. There was no rescuing me. So why <laughs> why give me the instructions on how to fall into the water? Again, that's that's how I feel in an airplane. Like they don't they have no when you go in an airplane, you're disabled, the same kind of thing. They have no there's no if you're disabled, this is how you get off the plane. There's like if the plane crashes, it was nice to know you. Same kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. If your if your basket falls, you're shark food. Bye, see you later. <laughs> So they they get me in the basket and keep in mind, I'm in like excruciating abdominal pain. And these are not big baskets, like smaller than an office desk, like maybe a shopping cart size basket. So I'm like, get you in there very carefully. (laughs) 
them very painfully. Yeah. They like, put me in, I'm like sitting like all squished up and they haul me up. Oh, and you had to sit? We, you were sitting. I was sitting. Which is like the worst for abdominal pain. Yes. Because your whole bowel is like, I want to poo now. Yes. And there's all this pressure because your knees are pressing against your yeah. abdomen. And there's no way to, it was awful. And so they haul me up, and that was when we realized why they don't usually let spouses go. It's because now there was nowhere for me to be. <laughs> so I just had to stay in the basket. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. That's, I mean, it's... <laughs> the, so everything you just described about the discomfort and the pain just became my life for, like, the next, I don't even know how many minutes. Oh, that's the worst. Yeah, so they flew us to the first available emergency hospital, which was in North Carolina, but they overshot the hospital helipad, and we landed in a vacant lot behind a pizza hut. (laughs) Okay, all right. Which, when you're in extreme pain, is very disorienting. (laughs) Totally. You're like, what is, how do I, so they had to, like, take you through the weeds away from the pizza hut to where the hospital is? Basically, yeah, they carried me in the basket and I was begging them to let me out because it was just so <laughs> painful. Just, like, just let me walk, please. But they wouldn't because liability. So they yeah. carried me in the basket across the, the vacant lot and then they put me in an ambulance to drive me across the street to the hospital. Okay, I get it. Like liability, but also <laughs> like from a medical insurance cost thing that feels like I'm sure that ambulance costs like 500 bucks. Probably. Just that little <laughs> And it was, I'm not joking, it was across the street. Like the... So, yeah, so that ends kind of like the funny, humorous part of the story, because then we actually get into the hospital. And at, at this point, like, I, I don't even care. I don't care about needles. I don't care about doctors. I don't care. Like, I am just ready to have the, make the pain stop. And so they do a CAT scan or an MRI. I don't know, one of the two. And they came back and they're like, we think she has a, an obstruction. We need to go in and, and fix it. Yeah. I remember looking up at the doctor or the surgeon and I'm like, well, it's going to be laparoscopic, right? And he looked at me like I was crazy. And he's like, no, we have no idea what's going on in there. We have to open you up and look. Oh, no. Like, okay. <laughs> but, and so what year did this happen in? This was 2019. So lit. <laughs> So this was only three years ago. How could they not do lepros? How? Why not? They I, they said they needed to open me up, so they did. But isn't the whole point of the MRI to look inside and see what's going on and then decide what to do? One would think. Okay. I, I'm gonna be, you know, full transparency. I was on pain medication at this point, so <laughs> all I can tell you is what I've been told and what I vaguely remember. So I remember being in the hall and they're like, this is your surgeon. And I thought it was an introduction. And then I woke up and the surgery was over. So there is a point at which my memory becomes <laughs> flawed. I but- too have had an obstruction. So I've, I, I know what that's like. Yeah. You're like, I'm in excruciating pain. I'm vomiting. Can't stop vomiting. No one is helping me. And then when I had the obstruction, my surgeon came and said, we, you're obstructed. We can, we have to open you up. We know what it is. Like, we know what it is. It's adhesions on your, from, from previous surgery, you have adhesions and they fold it over each other. We have to unfold them. And I was like, gross, that's gross, but okay, fine. And he was like, well, you can go home and see if it'll pass or we can do a surgery. And I was like, what, what would you do if it were you? And he goes, I'd have the surgery. And I was like, great, that's what I'll be doing. 
And then I the same as you, we got in there. They said who they were. I went to sleep. And I woke up and they were gone. <laughs> it was fine, apparently. I don't even remember falling asleep. I remember like, oh, hi, it's nice to meet you. And then I'm in a completely different floor, completely different room. Yeah. But my partner, it, it actually ended up being really, really um, scary. Because when they did get me open, what they found out was that... Um, part of the procedure I'd had ahead of our wedding had caused the bowel obstruction but that was what I had thought was the stomach flu so my symptoms my early symptoms I didn't pick up for what they were yeah by the time it got as bad as it was the blockage had actually caused another perforation oh no so they ended up removing the blockage they took out two sections of you know my intestine and had to them put me all back together um, but they said that they cleared over two liters of just toxic sludge from me. They told my my partner that if we had stayed on the ship, I would not have made it to Bermuda. What? Oh, no. Yeah. They're like, we're really glad you guys made the call that you did. Because if you had waited another couple hours or even another hour, you would have been stuck on the ship and you would not have made it. That's that's terrifying. Yeah. What? <laughs> like... Oh, no. So really, my first lesson here is just body acceptance, right? Like, don't yeah. do things yeah, like a wedding dress. Just buy the next size up. It's fine. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I woke up, and, and that really is, like, from from a mental health, emotional state, that really is, like, one of the more ironic points. And I've gotten to a point where I can joke. But, I mean, this whole thing started because I was concerned about my appearance for my wedding, yeah. And now I have like a nine inch incision right down the center of my stomach. I've had to have, <laughs> I've had to have two other reparative surgeries because my scars kept healing funky. I had to have wound care. Um, I don't get like the cool, subtle sutures, like where they call in plastic surgeon. I get the, she was about to die, staple that bitch <laughs> up level. Suit. So I have the Frankenstein stitches with the little dots on either side. Oh no, I mean, cool, but also, oh no. I mean, cool in some settings, but this whole endeavor started because I wanted to be pretty and and attractive as a newlywed and I came out the other side with some pretty severe disfigurements yeah but then on top of that they had to put in mesh to hold my guts in place and so the scar tissue has built up and now really it's become more of a chronic pain and a chronic discomfort situation in a way that I don't think anybody could have expected or anticipated yeah and that um, really was was the um, more difficult part of this otherwise humorous story of near deaths and helicopters. I mean, it's still I think it should be a fucking rom com, and you should sell it to somebody and have them and have them do it for you, and like get like I don't know Scarlett Johansson or somebody to play you, and just do like do like do that because it's hilarious. But also, I totally get like when you try to do something for to look quote unquote perfect and we all do it but especially those of us with disabilities who have never really felt accepted we try to do this because if I, if I look perfect then somehow my disability won't be a part of it um so <laughs> it is a great story but also I'm so sorry you had to go through it 
it's been, you made the comment that it happened three years ago and it did, but it's also taken three years to recover. I I just finished physical therapy this winter and it's just for the first time since then that I'm mostly pain-free. I have some twingy days, but I mean, it took three years to recover from something that you didn't um, even have. Like, if we just had better discussions of body acceptance and disability and all those things, you probably wouldn't have felt like you had to even do that. Yeah. And the ironic thing is, because I went from multiple surgical recoveries straight into a global pandemic, obviously, I weigh more than I did now before the surgery. Yeah. So not only did it not do anything for me, I'm actually like, it's, and I have, that's just the reality now. And I think that regardless of all of that, you're beautiful anyway. So it's so oh, okay. <laughs> but I mean, I, th- I really do think you should call up Hallmark Nicholas. <laughs> I have a story for you. We can get the cruise line to do like corporate sponsorship. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yes. Yes. And I can play one of the, just one of the crew people that's like, oh no, she can't move anywhere. No, I want you to be the captain that's like, no, you're taking him too, even if it means she has to sit in the squished little basket. Yeah, I'll be that one. I, I, <laughs> yes. Um, so like, the, and I didn't even ask you my first question, which I totally forgot because I was so excited to hear this story. So <laughs> my, my first question was supposed to be, can you tell me about your disabilities and what they are and how they impact your day-to-day life? Um, yeah, so I, you're caught up on part of it. I mean, obviously, I have some physical disfigurements. I have some chronic pain issues now. Um, but I was born with um, a pretty rare form of congenital deafness. I was born without any internal ear structure at all. I don't have an ear canal. I don't have like a cochlear implant won't work for me because there's nothing for it to report to. Um, But it's always been really weird because my external ear is a little bit smaller than normal, but relatively well-formed. And so I've always had my entire life this very weird sort of hybrid experience of being hearing impaired and being um, hard of hearing, but not looking obviously such. I don't have any um, assistive devices. I don't have anything... My, my, I had speech therapy when I was little, so I don't necessarily sound deaf, which is a horrible thing to say, but you yeah, know what? Because you know I get it. it. I understand. Yeah. And all the listeners are like, oh, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> and so a lot of the things that would have probably been really beneficial for me as a kid, like learning sign language, my parents didn't do because by external standards, I was pretty much normal. Until I got to school and was struggling with hearing and struggling with grades and assignments because I couldn't hear. And now that I'm getting older and I've hit middle age, I st- I'm starting to lose my, the hearing that I do have, my residual hearing. And, and it's really frustrating to think that, you know, I could have been like ASL my entire life. And now I kind of have to step in and learn as an adult. I'm not sure what my, what my next question was. And you were about to say something, as I was about to say something, I think, so. I was just going to say, it's it's always been a weird hybrid world where I don't feel hearing enough to call myself not disabled, but I also don't feel deaf enough to really feel included within the disability community. So it's this very sort of narrow path of, she's fine. And so how do you navigate? Because you're like the millionth guest on the show that's told me exactly what you just said, which is like, I... I'm somewhere in between. I don't feel disabled enough. I don't feel like I'm allowed to 
take up that moniker for myself. I don't feel like I'm allowed to use that label for myself. But I also have these issues. How do I navigate that? How does how does kind of living in that limbo make you feel? Um, it's not a great feeling. It's interesting because there, I, I have enough sort of adaptive behaviors and adaptive routines in place that most days feel okay. One of my mom's favorite stories is she lost me in a grocery store when I was a toddler and somebody found me and I was just spinning in circles going, mama, mama. And I was turning my good ear like a little sonar trying to find <laughs> It's adorable. <laughs> It is adorable. And I tell people that story and they're like, oh, that's cute and really sad. I mean, it is really sad, but also I love it. <laughs> Just like little, little sonar Stephanie spinning around in the middle of the store. And I mean, but I mean, I've always done that. I've always been put in a position where my parents didn't seek out accommodations or or do much to make sure that I was equipped if I were to lose my hearing. Was it and- that your parents like didn't want to seek out that stuff because they were like, she'll be fine. Or was it, do you think that they don't have, they didn't have enough information to properly decide that you needed this? So I think it's a combination of the two. At one point they did take me to the ear Institute out in Los Angeles and they did like a whole um, workup. That was the first time I ever had a CAT scan because I was little and I thought I was inside of R2D2. I was very excited to be inside (laughs) R2D2. (laughs) I'm learning so much more about you just from your, just from like, you're such a nerd like me. I love it so much. So, I mean, they, they did make an effort to kind of get the lay of the land and figure out what's going on. But from there, I don't know that, I think it was a certain degree of, you know, she manages day to day. It doesn't seem to bother her. She's not noticeably hindered. So she's fine. And I think what people don't realize is that you were probably experiencing a lot of internalized ableism of like, I'm young and I can't say to my mom and dad, my my, my family, like, I need help with this because mm-hmm. they've already told me that I'm fine. So therefore I have to do, like when we're kids and our parents tell us that we're fine, we, and tell us to be fine, we do this thing as kids, but especially as disabled kids, if your family says you're fine, you will be fine even when you're not fine. Absolutely. I remember sitting on the playground and the the place that we were living, I would have been between kindergarten and second grade. So little bitty sitting on the playground with my friends and we were um, in the Southwest at the time. So a lot of my friends are bilingual and we were talking about their speaking Spanish. And I remember saying, I really want to learn sign language because if if I go deaf, if I lose the rest of my hearing, I, I, I don't know how I would talk to anybody. And I was really, really scared and very, very cognizant of the skill gap. And they're like, well, why don't you ask your parents for classes? And I'm like, because they wouldn't do it. Like, I, I, I can hear and I can speak. So why would they do that? But even from little bitty, I was very aware of the fear of losing what, what hearing I do have and feeling profoundly unequipped to navigate that if it were to happen. And so as an adult now... We talked about it a little bit a second ago, but as an adult, how do you, like, do you feel like you're more equipped now? Do you feel like you, because you have more agency now, you're able to, like, not have those feelings? Like, how has the internalized ableism and the fear changed or not? I think I'm working on it. 
Um, I, I do, you know, have an ENP and I do sort of have agency over my own health care and my own health decisions now, which is really helpful. I'm able to make sure I'm getting preventative testing and things to just offer reassurance. Yeah. Um, I'm able to make the decision about little things like the closed captioning is on on our TV. And I'm isn't it the best? I am not a person with hard of hearing or deaf, but I as somebody with profound processing issues due to like multiple learning disabilities I have. Having the having the closed captioning on on anything I watch is amazing because I can follow along with what's happening. It's the greatest thing ever. And the fact that I was in my late 20s before I realized that was an option is a little bit shocking to me in hindsight, right? Like, I feel like this is the kind of thing that at some point somebody should have been like, you know, Steph, if you flip the switch over here, you'll be able to follow the show. Yeah. <laughs> I wish they had, you know, closed captioning in movie theaters and it was more prevalent. And I just wish, like, because I don't go to movies because sometimes my brain, all the colors and all the sounds, all the stuff, I can't focus. But if I can read what's happening, I can focus. Absolutely. I It's a little thing, but I'm a huge theater nerd. I went to theater camp in middle school, like a big theater, high school drama kid. And we subscribe to our local sort of theater season. but. They used to, when they sold CDs, include the libretto and include the words. And the first yeah. maybe 20 or 30 times I listened to something, I would I could follow along. And they don't do that anymore. And so it's really funny. I know like every 90s musical, every Andrew Lloyd Webber, like by heart. Why are we not best friends? I <laughs> sit and listen to The Phantom of the Opera. Like I, I, I bought it off YouTube. I bought the 25th like Royal Albert Hall version. And I watch it probably like once a month because I'm like, I'm bored. Phantom's there. I'll just watch it. It's, I love the theater so much, but I agree with you. I can't focus when I'm in the theater a lot of the time because it's, there's so much going on. And there's no way now for modern things for me to just, I, I can't, I can't pre-learn what I need to know in order to enjoy a show. I yeah. can't down with the CD and the libretto and then go to the theater knowing the words by heart. And so I don't need to try and, and strain to make them out. Now, when I go, I'm going in blind and crossing my fingers and hoping that maybe I can make out most of it and have a good time. And that feels like a loss to me. Do you think that if you claimed the label of disabled more openly and said, like, when you went to the theater, when you went to these places and said, yo, I'm disabled, I need accommodations. And you started saying... I am disabled. I need this. Do you think that, that by saying that and asking for like direct accommodation, that might change? Maybe, but I'm about to give you an answer. I, I suspect you've heard before. I'm always concerned that if I do that, I'm going to be taking away resources from somebody that needs it more. Oh, I disagree with you. No, no, no. I get it. And I fully understand why you feel that way, but I'm here to tell you that it's okay to claim disability because I mean, look at what's happening with the pandemic right now. Like we're recording this February, 2022. Um, we're two years into a worldwide pandemic and it, ha it has been, I saw it on Twitter the other day. It's been labeled a mass disabling event, which means that so much more of us are going to be coming into the fold due to this virus. So I think that you have the right to say I'm disabled, I think. And I give it to you to do with whatever you want, but I feel like the more we claim that language, because it's not easy to say I'm disabled. It's not an easy thing to get to. And I, I can imagine for you, you've struggled with wanting to, but not 
like you just said, not wanting to take up space. But once you name that for yourself, I think, and also given the practice, uh, given the practice that you work in, I think by also claiming that, I think if I walked into your practice and you said, I'm Dr. Stephanie Garlick, I am disabled. I would be like, oh, cool. Let's have a conversation about all of it. Like it opens you to a different client base too, because they see you as one of them and they can go, oh, sh- she'll understand. We can, I can talk about this more openly. So I think actually it would be a boon for you professionally because it would change the kind of clients that you have access to that and is- also make you feel better about yourself. <laughs> I will tell you the most, um, disabled in a negative sort of othering context I've ever had was in a professional context. I had actually applied to be um, a 911 operator because I'm a trained mediator. I'm a trained crisis interventionist. I'm a social worker. Like everything that this job requires, I can do. I'm really great in a conflict. Like I'm I'm in. This is like my dream position with my bachelor's level before I went to grad school. And on paper, I was absolutely perfect. And then I got to the bottom and it said you had to have perfect hearing. Uh, And for a minute, I'm like, but I'm so good and I'm so qualified and I have skills. I have a combination of skills that they're not going to find in anybody else. And I reached out to them and I'm like, this is me. Like, is it like, this is who I can, who I am. This is what I can do. I'm not asking for special treatment. I'm just asking if there's any alternative. And they were like, no. So what you're saying is 911 recruiting is ableist? Um, their answer to me was that you needed to be able to be listening to the caller and also listening to instructions you're being given by a supervisor. So I, I, they would not say it was ableist, but that was the absolutely most disabled and rejected I've ever been made to feel because I was so bizarrely qualified for that position to have something like my hearing utterly rule me out was really devastating. I can imagine because like, like I could not be a 911 dispatcher because I'm a nervous giggler. So I I don't want to be put in a position where I have to save someone's life. And then I start inadvertently laughing at them. Not appropriate. But also like, I think that 911 should have disabled dispatchers because if I'm disabled and I'm going through something, I kind of want to talk to somebody who gets what I'm talking about. So like if you call 911 and said, I'm a wheelchair user, so-and-so happened, they would patch you through to a 911 dispatcher who was also a wheelchair user who could like talk to you about that experience if you needed it. Yeah. And, and we have adaptive equipment and adaptive services for hearing impaired callers, we have, you know, text relay and all of that, that at the time I did not understand why that wasn't also viable for me, why I couldn't be um, the the dispatcher that was tasked with manning the text relay and doing that. But it was the the fact that I am hard of hearing was an absolute disqualifier. Well, I think that sucks because I would, because now I want to see like a 911, like, Fox TV show where they do where all they do is put disabled people on the show. That's all like that. Amazing. Like can can somebody at Fox call me and we can make that happen, please? I want to do it. Oh, I will write it myself. Um, but is there any other time in your in your life, not like not so much professionally or professionally too? Is there any other time that you felt disabled and didn't like it? 
It can be interesting as a um, parent. My, my son is now in his early 20s, but the teenage years were really difficult because he would say something and I wouldn't hear. And I would ask him to repeat and I would ask him to repeat and I would ask him to repeat. And at a certain point, he just rolls his eyes and goes, you know what? Never mind. Ugh. And the the feeling of disconnection in that relationship, the feeling, and I don't want to ever make him feel bad. So the the internalized response of I'm just not worth being patient for, which is not no. his intention at all, but that's absolutely no, it's you. It comes across yeah. combined with the I'm trying to communicate with my child. I'm trying to have conversations with a, a teenage boy. The fact that my kid wanted to talk to me as a teenager was a blessing. So that that barrier, that that inability to hear and be understood, and then for him to, as a young person, have the patience to just say it over and over and over is was really difficult at times. I can imagine. And, you know, teenagers are assholes at the best of times. So, like, I was a, I was definitely an asshole teenager, and I, like... I know I remember what that was like from the being the young person. I can't imagine being the mother of a asshole teenager and trying to also like, you know, deal with your own stuff. Um, did, was there ever like since kind of coming into your disability identity and kind of wanting to own that more. And even just since this, since we started, since we started talking about it today, is there anything about that that you think being disabled for you would be good? That is a fascinating question. It's interesting because as a therapist, you would think I would have thought about that before, but I honestly don't know that I ever have. Um, I think that it's given me a, a unique perspective. I think that it's made me a curious person and a question asker, which is really good in, in mental health, right? Like nobody wants a therapist that just sits and stares at them. So, so having grown up needing to ask for more information, ask for clarification, ask for expansion, um, serves me really well in my professional work. But until you asked me that question, I had never really thought about it. We should totally unpack that more. I think like I was, like I was saying to you, I think that you would be, I think if a disabled person came into your office, whether they had an invisible disability, undiagnosed or diagnosed or a physical disability, undiagnosed or diagnosed and they said I think I'm disabled and I want somebody to talk to you then have an in to be like guess what I'm disabled too I've gone through what you're going through like we can talk like you don't have to give them your whole personal history but you can say like here's what I've gone through here are some steps that I've used to to manage that do you want to talk about ableism and how it plays a role in your you know day to day because I think that that every therapist that I've been to and I've been to therapy a couple times and they're nice people, but they're all identifying as able-bodied. And so talking about anything disability is me having to teach them about disability. And it, that's exhausting. And I hate it. So I stopped going to therapy because I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to spend the hour teaching you. I want to, I'm supposed to be the one learning stuff. What's going on? So I think you saying, I'm Dr. Stephanie Gorlick, I am disabled is such a would be such a powerful thing to put out in the world. Again, I leave that with you. Do with it whatever you want to do, but I just think it would change the game. I, I think 
hearing you say that is really profound. And I know that for so many of my clients, because I do work with sexual minorities and I do work with marginalized populations, that when I have somebody that is coming to see me because they identify as kinky, and then they're telling me that it's hard to date or it's hard to attend events or it's hard to go to a meetup because it's not accessible or for exactly the same reason you and I have been talking about. It's too loud. The ambient noise isn't let that, like I've been in those situations. And so being able to kind of talk about that intersection of sexual identity and, and dis- disabled identity can be really beneficial. I would strongly encourage you to consider that. And if you need help, like, finding a way to use language to put that in your practice let me know and i'd love to like work with you on something to to put it in there gently not so not like you're like guess what i'm on the disabled therapist now but like a way to make it like a gentle like let's talk about it um i want to back up a little bit to the to the helicopters and the and the sea rescue because that's the best that's the best part of this interview so far um but i want to i want to ask you about so we've talked a little bit about the recovery from that and how hard it's been, how hard it has been for you with all the surgeries and all the things you've had to do. How has that, how has that impacted your self-esteem and your sexuality? So self-esteem was really hard. I mean, this whole thing was kind of tipped off by, and I will hold myself accountable and be honest, by vanity. And to end up in a much different shape and form than I was prior it was a lot for me to deal with. I, I did deal with a lot of internalized um, ableism, internalized sort of beauty myths around having scars and, and feeling disfigured. I use the word disfigured. There are some scars that are like pretty and sexy and kind of hot. And then there's what I have going on, which really just leaves me feeling like Frankenstein most of the time. And so processing that has been huge. I actually just last summer bought the first bikini that I've had since all of this happened. And it's a little drapey. I mean, it's not like putting my scars like full front and center, but that took me a lot to get to a point where I'm like, yeah, I'm going to rock a bikini again. And now I own like two of them. And that's super exciting to me. But again, COVID, I don't even get to wear them. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, that's been huge. And then I mentioned this happened right after my partner and I got married. The impact on sexuality and sexual functioning, I don't think anybody could have anticipated. I don't think anybody expected my body to react in terms of scar formation the way that it did. And there's so much internal scarring around the mesh and around all the various work and reconstruction I've had to have done that it's really difficult to to have orgasms now, not because it's not physically possible. I didn't lose my orgasmic capacity, but the way your body responds when you come, you clench up and your muscles get tight. And all that does is squeeze all that scar tissue in my abdomen. And so now when, when I have sex with my husband, I really have to think about, you know, like, am I in a place where I can come? Do I need to say no? Because if, if I do, I'm going to be sore for two or three days. So I need to think about like my client load, like how much sitting up do I have to do over the next couple of days? Am I able to lie down and rest or do I have seven clients tomorrow? And all like, do, do I have to go to the grocery store and be carrying things? Because all of that sort of 
you know, chronic pain calculus has to come into effect before oh my God, I can... I've never heard that before. And now I want to use it for everything. Chronic pain, <laughs> amazing, amazing. I love it. But, but I am doing all this sort of like mental math just to decide whether or not I'm allowed to have an orgasm with my partner. And meanwhile, he's losing out. I mean, it's not all about me, but, you know, in a good relationship, we enjoy making each other happy, right? Like part of, of the fun is getting your partner off and yeah. out on that too. And so it, it has been difficult, it, especially as newlyweds. It felt a lot like we got deprived of our sort of honeymoon phase. And I, I, I'm Jewish and our vows are different than the trip traditional Christian vows. And apparently when I was on morphine in the hospital, I looked at him and just died laughing. And he's like, what is going on? And I said, you didn't have to say sickness and health. Ha, you, you're stuck with me. Like you, you don't have to be here. You can leave. Like you didn't promise sickness and health. Our vow, like you, you, you don't have to, you didn't sign up for this. And he's like, no, yeah. I'm in long haul. I'm good. <laughs> but, but in my sort of like pain med haze, I thought it was hilarious that he was still in the room, even though he didn't promise to stick around. <laughs> but, but that does impact sort of things. Like I, I think about what he's lost in sticking around. I think about how we get married and immediately our entire sort of like intimacy model has to change. And, and Oh man, there's so much, there's so much ableism around what you've just said, like thinking about what a partner would lose, thinking about what you could offer them or what you can't offer them. Like I don't have a partner and I go through those feelings constantly, like all the time, even still of like, if I have sex with this hot guy that I met on this thing and I can't perform, will they leave? Will I, will I, you know, so I think that's why I'm saying I think you are more, I think you are claiming the disability label more than I think you realize you are. Cause like, I, I go through that all the time. Those, that little internalized ableism voice that's like, what about this? And what about this? And like, if you're going through chronic pain calculus, I think that you're definitely one of us, but, um, (laughs) But the entire theme of this conversation has turned into one of us. I mean, I'm trying so hard to, I'm trying so hard to indoctrinate you right now. That's <laughs> that's really what I'm doing. Um, but I wanted to to shift to your your book that you currently have out right now, okay. not the one that you can buy when this comes out, but the one that's out as we're talking. What was it called again? So it's called the Leather Couch Clinical Practice with Kinky Clients. It's kind of cool. It was um, ASEC, which is the organization that actually credentials sex therapists. It was their book of the year. And then it was the professional book award um, for the Society for Sex Therapy and Research. So apparently it's not terrible. People seem to like it. Amazing. Amazing. I will have to get a copy and have a read. Um, uh, What was I going to ask you? Oh, yeah. My question was, how do you think in the kink community? Because I think there's a lot of ableism in the kink community and there's a lot of shame mm-hmm. around disability in the BDSM community. And, you know, with models like um, 50 shades of gray and all that stuff that is not, we all know that's not real kink, but as that's the only way to kind of see kink in popular culture, how do you think we can address ableism in kink? I love that question. And it's a powerful and hard question. And my first answer comes with an immediate caveat, because I think one of the most important things is for people to understand that the kink community doesn't look like the actors on screen in Fifty Shades. The kink community looks like 
us. They look like normal everyday people. They are, um, they bring their own bodies and, and challenges to the table. And, and that is, I, I've never been in a room full of kinky people where everybody's been like this felt, able, super capable, super muscled, like they're, they're, they're humans. And I think understanding. Obviously that, you've never been in a, in a male gay bar as a gay, as a gay man. Cause I mean, that would be weird for me. I mean, <laughs> Because what you're describing is what you're describing is like every gay bar that I've been into, white, felt, muscular. Okay, oh my fair, God. fair, but broad strokes though. Yeah. Like if you go to a, a large event, that you see a lot of diversity. That I think a lot of people who are attracted to kink or BDSM but don't feel like they would fit in. It, it becomes sort of a negative feedback loop where they don't seek out the community because they're afraid they won't fit in, but because they never see the community, they don't realize that they would. Yes. So that's part of the answer. But the caveat to that is it can be a barrier when community organizers are not conscientious of people with disabilities and don't create opportunities for them to show up when they want to, when they don't think about where they're having events or, or how they're structuring events that can become frustrating because then people who have different disabilities than I do, I might feel included in an event and then they don't. So there's such an opportunity for people to feel welcomed and to feel a, a part of the community if they're able to go out and see that it's not what they're seeing on screen. But we have to create systems that facilitate that for more people than we currently do. Yeah, and I think also the community, I think what I would love to see in a kink space, I would love to see just a one-hour conversation in a kink space in all of our leathers and in all of whatever we choose to be in and in our harnesses, whatever it is, and just say, let's talk about ableism today, period. That's the whole the whole hour in like a kinky, sexy space talking about how does ableism impact the space we're in? How does it, how does your prejudice towards that able-bodied guy over there versus the person with, who's hard of hearing or who has, who's a wheelchair user, how come the hot, seemingly able-bodied guy or person is more attractive to you than this person over here and getting that community to like look at themselves a little bit and I wish we could do that more it's awesome that you say that right before COVID hit I was putting together a, a sort of structured format for doing just that kind of dialogue like a roundtable disabilities chat in kink spaces at kink wow event. do you need a co-chair because i'll <laughs> i would love that i put the whole thing together i had this whole like model it was gonna be amazing and then covid hit and there have been no events at all so give it another year or two and you and i will totally make this happen i'm here yeah 100 percent. the answer is yes because i think like i think in those spaces the way we see kink spaces is it's all about like kinky sex yeah and we all know that's not true it's so much deeper than that but like if we sat around a room and we talked about ableism openly for an hour and let kinky people have their prejudices and voice them and say, oh, I don't think I could fuck that kinky guy in the wheelchair because I'm afraid of, and they got to say it. Because I think part of the problem in the kink community is that, or any community really when we're talking about sex and disability, is that no one's allowed to talk about it. No one wants to talk about it because talking about it means you said the wrong thing, means you've 
possibly offended a disabled person, and that's like the biggest taboo you could do. So I think we need to find to find a space where it's like, okay, say the worst thing you're thinking about disability right now. Go, like, say it out loud, and there's no shame. And I'm not going to call you an ableist. And I'm not going to scream at you. You're just going to say it. And I think if we create a safe space to do that, it could change the game. Absolutely, and I think that people that are attracted to folks with disabilities, people that are comfortable um, having scenes with somebody that might be a wheelchair user, um, feel restrained in voicing that because it's so easy to be misconstrued as fetishizing the disability. Yeah. So we're scared to speak our prejudices and we're scared to ask our questions, but we're also scared to say when we're cool with something, because all three of those outcomes could lead to us being accused of something we're not actually trying to do. Yeah. And I think in kink spaces, in in our social justice world, especially on social media right now, it's really fun to be accusatory. And I'm like, can we not, can we, can that part go away? Can we just, can we have an open conversation? Even if I disagree with you 1000%, can we just talk about stuff before you blast me in a post? Like, and I feel like sometimes in, in sex positive spaces, that's what's happening before we get to the nitty gritty. So I would love to do this thing with you where we can like sit and just talk about ableism. Like I have ableism around partners all the time that it might be more disabled than me. Like I have this thing where I, Sometimes I won't date a disabled person because how are we going to mess around if they can't help me? Like, but that's ableism because what if the person that I did that's more disabled than me or equally disabled to me is hot and I like them? Like, why am I saying no to that? You know, so I think getting us to explore all of our ableism and kink is something we don't do enough. And I think it would be such a cool project to work on. Absolutely. And the kink community is so well equipped to do that because it is so naturally creative. I mean, the kink community is like the yes and improvers of sex. Like we yeah. will very rig it. We will build it. We will accept you. You know, it, it, it will be, a th- but we first have to create a space where people are, are comfortable having that conversation. Yeah. And I think regardless of whether or not you're in kink, the conversation of am I an ableist is like, really hard and really yeah. final. And I wish we could change it from am I an ableist to what have I done that's ableist today? And how do I change it? instead of like giving it a final, like I'm ableist is final and complete. Whereas what have I done to contribute to ableism today is a lot more like open and there's possibility and there's conversation there. And I think the King community needs to do that more. 100%. Um. One question that I want to ask you that I was really kind of fascinated by in the questionnaire, and it's the last main question that I have, but it was really important that I ask it. You said that you spend the majority of your time helping as a certified sex therapist, helping people achieve sexual outcomes that you yourself no longer experience. And I wanted to talk about that because one of the themes that I talk about a lot on this show is disability grief. And what it is like to have disability grief. And we sort of touched on that a little bit today with kind of all that you've, you've gone through and are going through as you navigate whether or not you feel disabled enough to be here, which by the way, you are. So, but, you know, do you feel a sense of grief in that you have to talk to clients about stuff you can't do? So 
I want to be really careful in how I answer because on the off chance, any of my clients or potential future clients are listening. I don't ever want them to feel responsible for my emotions, right? Like if I, if my work were too difficult for me to navigate emotionally, then I would pick something else to do. So I, I want to be really clear that my feelings are mine and nobody else's fault. Yeah. <laughs> but that said, it is difficult to one of the main um, main challenges that brings people to sex therapy is is loss of libido and difficulty with orgasm. So because that's such a main theme in my professional work and in my world, having all of the tools and ideas and resources and, and exercises and modalities to help somebody experience more sexual pleasure to help them feel more relaxed and comfortable and able to receive pleasure is um, an interesting position to find yourself in when in your private life, you're having to say no. And when you're having to make a conscious choice to not in order to be present to have those conversations with other people. And that is absolutely my choice and my work. But I mean, it, there are days when it takes a toll. Absolutely. Can you talk more about like what that grief feels like and how you like how you just on a personal level, how do you navigate that when you when you have to like because I, I think similarly to what I do, I give people advice on how to be hot and disabled and all that stuff. And then I have to go home and deal with a body that doesn't want to do what I wanted to do or so I understand that grief from a personal level. What is that like for you? I think that for me, it, um, and this is probably more personality. And as you've already so rightly pointed out, a, a lot of internalized ableism, a lot of it comes through in terms of feeling inadequate, in terms of feeling like my partner deserves to have somebody better in terms of feeling as if the encounters where I do say no, not to sex, but to orgasm, I've, I've diminished them or ruined them in some way. It, it, it becomes a very internalized grief of um, if I were better, things, other people would be happier. Or if I were um, healthier, then other people wouldn't be impacted or held back. So a lot of the grief, um, I think just because of the nature of who I am and the fact that I tend to be a very independent, very um, mostly responsible person, I tend to take those feelings and turn that into, this is my fault. Yeah. And I, I, I feel that too. And I, especially when it comes to sex, because we are so, as humans, we like, we want to please other people when your body doesn't allow you to do that in the way that you want to, or in the way that your fantasy has led you to believe that you should do that, it can be really hard to reconcile that. And like the grief, I think, and I talk about, I talk, I'm talking about it because I think talking about disability grief and like internalized ableism is important because we don't give it voice enough. So that's why I brought it up because I think that we should talk about it, but I, I can see like so much of myself and what you were saying, like, Am I good enough? Why are they here? They could just find someone else. Like, I don't have a long-term partner, but even when I'm hooking up with guys that I know or my sex worker, I'm always like, they could easily be with someone who could please them way better. What are they doing here? Like, this is, this is a waste of their time and probably mine. Why, why am I doing this? And so I, I fully get that grief. And I hope for you that you can move through that with comfort maybe by saying you're disabled maybe by putting that moniker in the grief will not let's not go away but like lessen 
All right, you've indoctrinated me. I will own my disabled label. Amazing. Amazing. I, I will also say that um, I, I know that there are other clinicians that deal with this in other areas, right? Like there, we we all as mental health workers, as supportive professionals, have the things that we have the tools for for other people, but that we still struggle with in our own life. And I, I think that my situation is unique because the work I do is so intimate in terms of the topics that we're that we're touching on. But I don't think that. Um, I would ever want my clients to think or or anybody to be concerned about their therapist in that respect, even if it were um, learning disabilities and how to nav- navigate learning and studying and retaining. Like we, no matter what our specialty is, we all have tools for our clients that we might not always be able to use for ourselves. And that can be frustrating, but that's part and parcel of being a human who does this work. Yeah, yeah. And I think the work you do talking, just talking about King of BDSM and being a, kink and BDSM therapists, that's cool because there's not a lot of there's not a lot of you out there really that are openly out there talking about this stuff. So thank you for what you do. Um we as a fellow kinky person, we appreciate it. I ran out of all the questions I wrote down. Was there anything that you wanted to touch on that we haven't yet? No, I really enjoyed this. I think we've had a lovely conversation. It was so fun to see I could sit like I could sit and nerd out with you about about like baskets and and helicopters and bad poo moments like <laughs> i've been there so i feel like it was so fun to sit down with you how can the people that are listening how can they get a hold of you and support you so the easiest way to find me is through my website my practice is boundtogethercounseling.com um, my text, email, social media, all of that's on there. And then um, my author page is just my name, stephaniegorlick.com. Go pick up the book, friends. And the book, now we're recording this a few months in advance, but can you say what the new, what the follow-up is? The new book is Kink Affirming Practice, Culturally Competent Therapy from the Leather Chair. Amazing. So by the time this comes out and you're listening, that book will be available and I'll make sure to have the show notes, have the link to buy that in the show notes. Please pick it up if you're kinky and you're listening, because I know you're all out there being crippled kinksters. I know you are. So have a listen. Uh, Dr. Stephanie Gorlick, this is great. And thank you so much. Thank you. I've had a wonderful time. Oh, it's so fun. Thanks again. And we'll talk soon. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye. All right, friends, that's another episode of Disability After Dark in the books. Thank you so much for making this episode comfy, cozy, and crippled, and I hope you enjoyed sitting down with your favorite disabled person on the internet and talking all things disability. Thank you so much for being here. If you want to follow my work, you can head over to my website, andrewgerza.com, or you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at andrewgerza1. If you want to be on the show, you can, of course, email us at disabilityafterdarkpod at gmail.com with your disability story. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to support Disability After Dark, you can go to patreon.com slash disabilityafterdark and pledge as little as $1 a month up to $5 a month or more, or even a yearly amount if that works for your budget. We at Disability After Dark, me, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for supporting this show and Cripple Co. and all the things we do. And tune in next week when we shine a light on another disability story right here on Disability After Dark. Bye, friends! Copyright Notice 
Disability After Dark was created, recorded, and produced by Cripple & Co. Productions and Andrew Gerza. Any and all use of materials, graphics, audio recordings, etc. cannot be used or distributed without express permission. If you would like to use an episode of the podcast or license an episode of the podcast on your website, please consider emailing Andrew Gerza and Crippling Co. Productions at disabilityafterdarkpod at gmail.com. Copyright 2022.